Passage Radio. Commence broadcast in three, two, one. You're listening to The Edge. Everything bass fishing. Coming to you nationwide from the Bass Edge Studios. Bass Edge Nation, springtime has arrived in most every part of the country, except for maybe Canada, which I know we've got <laughs> lots of Bass Edge Nation still way up north. I appreciate you guys hanging with us, but uh, we've got a new episode ready for you. A lot of stuff going on today. Really excited to get another episode of Bass Edge Radio. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, it would not be possible without all of our great partners, specifically this episode presented, as always, by Mega wear keel guard be sure to protect your boat from grinding sand abrasive rocks and concrete boat ramps put on the protection the pros pick visit them at keelguard.com aaron i gotta say i'm obsessed with my computer over the last several weeks and uh the reason for that is all this live broadcasting going on you know for a long time it was are, bass we, still talk- are we still talking about fishing yes oh, we okay, are okay okay we are that's the amazing thing we're still talking about fishing and live and flw stepped up the game in a big way you know this is the second now tournament that they've provided this you know obviously here you know, just completing up the uh, event down in Florida. And, uh, dude, they got two great hosts working the mic. They've got cameras in every boat. I mean, it's not always action-packed, right? Because contrary to popular belief, even if you're doing well in a tournament, you just aren't jacking fish all day. It just doesn't happen. You know, the editing makes it look that way. But to actually be able to watch these guys, all these guys, fish in a real-time manner really puts a different different light on the whole show so you got flw live kicking it up big time you've got bassmaster live they've included davy height into the mix which is a great addition you know really helping to uh put into focus what's going through these anglers minds different things that are going on throughout the day you know the live leaderboards i mean you, you're just seeing it all day really what it's doing is cramming bandwidth and making people unproductive <laughs> no doubt no doubt it could be uh, i'm sure there's a thank goodness you know, for at least part of the tournament days are actually on the weekend. So, but yeah, those those Thursday and Friday airings, uh, I'm sure there's not a lot of productivity at the workplace for those of us who are kind of obsessed with gaining every ounce of information that we can to see how guys like yourself react and respond out on the water to triggering those bass into biting. And, you know, I got to say, I think it really legitimizes the sport. The challenge has always been because, you know, even my wife would say, she said, the most frustrating thing is when you come in from a tournament, I have no clue. She said, I have to look at your face and that automatically tells me what kind of day you had. Now, that's not necessary, Kurt. So it's going to be really interesting to see how this continues to evolve over the next few years. And who knows, maybe you're going to have a drone hovering above you for the entire time filming you. But uh, hey, speaking of the tech, like you speak of and being so obsessed with your computer, one other thing that I think we need to go grab a bit of is this episode's tackle tip. It's definitely going to be one of those snippets that's going to help you put more fish in the boat. This episode's ProtectTheHarvest.com Tackle Tip with Mark Rose. Hey guys, a vibrating jig is one of the best baits that you can throw, especially in the springtime. Don't be scared to throw your 
trailer on that bait sideways. A rage bug is one of my favorite baits to throw. Most people throw it with, uh, with kind of flat, the way you take this rig. Rig it sideways, imitates a big blue gill, perfect trailer for a vibrating jig. Great tip. Thanks, Mark. First by land and now by sea. For years, Lucas Oil has been a staple in high-performance vehicles on both the road and track. Now, from the makers of Lucas Oil comes Lucas Marine products, specifically engineered for marine applications. Protect and lubricate your marine inboard, outboard, or high-performance boat with Lucas Marine Engine Oil or Lucas Synthetic-Based Oil. Learn more about the complete line of Lucas Oil and marine products. Visit lucasoil.com. Nitro Performance Fishing Boats is now the official boat of Bass Edge Radio. Be sure to check out the Nitro Z-Series Performance Fishing Boats. The 2017 lineup features five boats ranging from 17.4 up to 21 foot 2 inches. Two new models for 2017 include the Nitro Z-17, our entry-level bass boat at 17 foot 4 inches and rated for 115 horsepower. The flagship of the Nitro lineup, the Nitro Z-21 at 21.2 in length. Its performance and fishability is unmatched. Designed with input from top elite pros like KVD, Edwin Evers, Rick Clun, and Ott Defoe, Nitro Performance Fishing Boats. Champions aren't born, they're made. Aaron, I got to bring something up that I totally forgot about. Uh, you know, once again, you know, we're at commercial break and everything's running through my head. And, um, you know, last episode, we failed to mention there's this dude in, you know, West Coast. It just doesn't get the media it deserves. But out at Lake Havasu back in February, now I'm throwing this back a little bit because Lake Havasu, Joe Uribe, this guy is dominating this West Coast Costa series. It's awesome. He just crushed it again at Lake Havasu, won the tournament, carried in this huge bag on day three, and uh, I just wanted to give a toss out to the West Coast guys, because I know we got a lot of them. We had, well, we always do. We had Mark Lassane on not too long ago on a show, so always trying to bring in the West Coast and the Bass Edge. Love what they bring, because it's always innovative, right? West Coast is the innovation of the world. Well, I won't go that far, but anyway, they bring a lot to bass fishing from the West Coast, so um, anyway, wanted to mention that. Now, going back to down way south, right? Out of Florida. You got, yeah. <laughs> you got Scott Martin. Dude, I've been watching this vlog. He calls it a vlog, you know, video log, kind of like a blog that people write, but he does it in a video. So it's called a vlog. And uh, he is following his whole year on the FLW tour. He's got a practice video, then he's got a tournament video, and they're like 20 or 30 minute videos. And uh, I just find them very entertaining. They're entertaining interesting you learn some stuff you get to see what it is like on the road out there so it's just cool stuff man i want to make sure that bass edge nation is aware of all these great things going on out there well there's so many choices and you know the great thing about scott obviously he is not only a good fisherman but he's very articulate knows how to present it well and make it like you said not only educational but certainly entertaining so uh certainly i I agree with you there i think scott always does a great job one other thing that i want to bring out that's kind of while we're throwing random topics out, Kurt, and and I wanted to pick your brain on a little bit. I think as anglers, as sportsmen, we have to be concerned about the conservation elements of our sport, right? And that protection of our resource, which is the fish and the water and everything else, 
What's your thoughts on kind of the culling clips, right? You know, there's been a lot of uh, discussion down through the years about poking holes in fish that we use in tournaments to to attach the, the culling systems on. Do you have any thoughts on that? You bet, man. You know, last year, what was the first time ever there was a tournament where they basically banned the puncturing culling clips. Um, I forget which uh, event it was. It was in a Bassmaster event, but none of the anglers could use a culling system that would puncture the, the fish's mouth, um, which is great because I think this is something that, again, it's like catch and release. You know, it's a problem that we're kind of creating for the bass that's easy easily fixed with a little bit of technology. And uh, we've we've got no affiliation with this particular company. I saw it on a friend of mine's Facebook page, but it's called the Clip and Cull. And it's from Cal Coast Fishing. There I go, bringing up the West Coast and innovation again. But but it's from Cal Coast Fishing, and it's called the Clip and Cull. And basically, they've taken some medical technology and and utilized it to put into a a culling system. So it's a non-penetrating culling clip that um that you can use for for you know conservation oriented fishermen which which i think we all are quite frankly if if we're catching release we're conservation oriented so this is a great way to utilize if you're a tournament angler to um you know use a culling system for your fish and it's again it's called the clip and cull from cal coast fishing it's pretty cool stuff so uh check it out y'all excellent stuff and if certainly if anybody has any other ideas out there we're always open ping us up on our social media and let us know and we'll do some more investigating or certainly bring it to the awareness of Bass Edge Nation to uh, help us support our mission of conservation. But uh, we need to move on. And guess what? It is time for the Lucas Oil Angler Spotlight as we have our next guest queued up, ready to go. It's sure to be a good one. You know the importance of protecting your investments, so why use anything other than the toughest keel protector for your boat? Grinding sand, abrasive rocks, and concrete ramps are no match for our patented technology. KeelGuard keel protectors are made tough and made to stick. Their do-it-yourself installation takes less than an hour, providing the most dependable, most trusted keel protection for your boat, guaranteed for life. So give your boat the performance edge. Put on the protection the pros pick. KeelGuard keel protectors. Hey, Edge listeners, this is Scott Suggs. I'm Dave Wolak. This is Chad Morgan-Taylor. Hi, I'm Chris Ball. This is Dion Hibden, and you're listening to The Edge. We have with us today a very consistent angler, no doubt a journeyman in the sport of professional bass fishing, coming off a top five event a few weeks back in a mind-boggling event near Austin, Texas at Lake Travis. Welcome to the podcast, FLW Tour Pro, Clark Ream. Thanks, Clark, for joining us in another episode of Bass Edge Radio. Thanks, Kurt and Aaron. I'm glad to be here. Well, Clark, uh, we're glad to have you, and I've got to say, you're looking good out there on the FLW Tour and off to a, a really a, a great start for 2017. Man, I appreciate it. You know, it's one of those deals I tell guys all the time. That you can't make up points in June towards making the Forestwood Cup or the Bassmaster Classic that you could make in February. So it's about being consistent from the jump. You never want to dig that hole at the beginning of the season. You just got to stay up there and just keep grinding. Well, Clark, let's talk about grinding a little bit uh, back there at Lake Travis. I remember you walking on stage um, talking about dialing in the feeding period. Can you explain what you meant and how that came to be and, and then how you were able to capitalize on it? Well, the first thing about that event was almost everybody had it wrong. Most of us went in there 
with a preconceived idea of that it was going to be either a spawning event or a pre-spawn event. Temperatures have been in the 80s for, for two or three weeks there. The water temp was mid-60s on a lot of areas of the lake. You know, it's February in Texas. Everybody's sitting there thinking these fish are going to be on beds or they're going to be pre-spawn. So most of us went out and practiced, and that's what we practiced for. That's what we went into the tournament expecting. You know, and even still, during the tournament, the whole idea was, is it going to happen? Is there going to be a wave of fish that move up? And you don't want to be sitting there, you know, on the outside looking in. If all of a sudden it turns into a spawning event or it's a pre-spawn event or setting up on secondary stuff. And so that's what everybody was kind of being prepared for. And that's why it was so confusing. One thing I've learned, I've been fishing for 10 years professionally, six on the Elite Series, four years now on the FLW Tour. And through all that time, I've learned how to pre-fish. And that's where a lot of these guys, especially rookies, get it wrong. They go out trying to figure out how many bites they can get in an area, what's the magic bait, what's this, what's that, and they try to overthink it. And if anything, I almost seem lackadaisical in my practice period. Because I'll talk to guys, I'm like, how did you do today? It's like, I don't know, I caught two or three. All I'm trying to do is establish patterns or what area of the lake I want to go to. In the elites, when we were fishing those, and Kurt can testify to this, that whenever you get two and a half days of practice, you have so many patterns you need to cover, so many areas of the lake, that all you're trying to do is figure out where you want to go. And then you use day one of the tournament to dial it in. Day two, you dial it in even more. And hopefully you make it to day three and four, so you have it pinpointed so well. And that's why you see the weights go up on the pro levels is that guys get it progressively dialed in and know exactly what's going on. So coming into there on to day one, I thought it was a pre-spawn deal. I ran around, hit some stuff where I caught some decent fish in practice. You typically fish your pre-fish right off the bat before you start throwing audible. I missed the rotation totally. I had 613 on day one, which was a bomb for that deal. My calling girl, however, caught two four-pounders, and he was sitting in third. And so he was sitting in great position, and it ended up being I went to my little magic spot too late in the day. It was over with, and I had it, again, pegged wrong. I thought it was a pre-spawn situation. The next morning, I started right there and started slow rolling a three-quarter ounce War Eagle spinnerbait. Because how this place laid out, it was a giant flat on the main lake, and there was two drains that were leading up into this flat. And the one thing I know about fishing in Texas is most lakes, it boils down to giant main lake flats with deep drain. And the best example I can give of that is Amistad. And this lake fished more like Lake Amistad than it did Table Rock or Beaver or some of these highland lakes where they had rocks that everybody was making these comparisons to. Frankly, on Travis, the rocks were basically like tourist traps. Everybody looked at those and thought, oh, I'm going to throw a wiggle ward. I'm going to throw this or that. And that's not how this lake fished. It fished more like an Amistad or a Sam Rayburn, where all those spots where most of the fish pile up and live on are on these main lake flats. And so what was happening is I was on the southern drain of the flat. A guy named Clayton Batts was on the northern drain, and he actually finished eighth. What was happening is in this drain, these fish would use that as a highway to pull up onto the flat where I thought they would be going up there to spawn. And if you were to drive by and look at it on your map chip, you would see that drain was there, and that's what people were assuming I was fishing. But it really wasn't. There was isolated bushes on the top of the drain. And what I thought was happening was those fish were pulling up and setting up on those bushes to stage and then going from there to go up shallow to spawn. And so on day two, I pulled up there and I started to flow on a spinnerbait. All my bigger fish in practice came on a spinnerbait and I caught 21 pounds. I actually had about 18 right there before I left. It was just Which was like the awesome. second, I think the second or third biggest bag of the entire event, by the way. Absolutely. And it, I jumped from 108th place to 6th 
place, which was the biggest jump in FLW history as far as somebody making a top 10 cut. It, it was just awesome. I caught a four, I had a six, I had a fish that I could not even budge. You know, when you're sitting there cranking that reel handle a few times and one hits it and all you can do is just hold on to the rod, you know, and it's on there for about three seconds and it pulls off. I mean, it, one of those just heart-stopping deals that you look back and think, what if? And you know, everybody has those fish during tournaments, but it is what it is. Running back that day, I made one quick stop where I jumped off of four on practice, and it's actually where I started on day one at the miscue. And I caught another four-pounder right there to kick my bag up to 21-11, uh, propelling me to six. The next day, ran straight to that spot, started again, and I thought, I'm about to crush them. And I could see them on the Lawrence unit. I could see those big ones down there just like I could the day before. Except the problem was I had all my bites by 9 o'clock, and I thought, okay, big ones are here. I need to just grind on it and lean on it. And I stayed there almost the entire day. And that was a bust. I ended up that day was right at nine pounds. And so for the final day, again, I'm sitting there dialing it all in. I'm realizing this isn't a spawn situation. These fish are feeding. And that's where everybody got it wrong in the tournament, or most of the guys got it wrong, was this wasn't a pre-spawn deal. If it was a pre-spawn situation, those fish would have stayed there. We would have just been able to grind around and get them to bite. But these fish were pulling up. Shad was there first thing in the morning. I saw shad on day four. I saw giant shad that were seven, eight inches long and bass coming up and gorging on them. Like I had one where it, there was probably a shad about seven inches long. And by this time, I put on a swim bait trying to get some of these bigger bites. And I watched a five-pounder come up to eat that shad, fired over there, stuck it, and it ended up being there was a, a lot of stripers with that five-pounder. And I caught a striper about two feet long. So that was one of those uh, heartbreaking moments of, of the deal. But again, at 9 o'clock, it was over. I recognized that, ran around a little bit more, caught a three-pounder off a of bed, and then had magic happen in the last cast. I hope that uh, on the GoPro they had on my boat, it catches it all. I pulled up to a marina, you know, fished a metal railing that came down in the water because I know on Travis they like metal dock. It didn't happen. I turned the boat around. I told my angler or my marshal, I said, man, this is the last cast. Flung a Kitech down the edge of the dock as I'm spinning the boat to turn it around to get out of the no-wake area, reeling it back, and with six feet of line off the, off the rod, you know, I had one smoke it, and they swung that fish in the boat all in the same motion. It was five-pounder. Wow. <laughs> it was like, it's time to go. <laughs> That's fantastic. So Hold butt back, and, uh, you know, it, it just was a great event for me. Clark, it sounds like the spinnerbait was obviously a key bait for you. And interestingly, that's sometimes anymore and and seems like in current conditions, that's almost a forgotten lure. What conditions are you looking for in the spring when you set down a different lure and and grab a rod with a spinnerbait on it? Well, there's several characteristics of a spinnerbait that make it a great bait in the spring. You know, a lot of times you are having to cover water to look for fish. And a spinnerbait is one of those baits. It kind of gets classified as an idiot bait because you just chunk and wine and you can cover water efficiently with it. Fish are drawn to it, you know, because that thump of the blade, if you got stained water, uh, you're just going to bring fish to it. It's a reaction bite. Even if they're in a lethargic mood, they're going to swipe at it. And it just seems like day in and day out, it produces better quality fish. Now, a lot of people have tended to go towards swim jigs and chatterbaits now instead of a spinnerbait seems like a spinnerbait works better when you do have a little bit of wind. And going into that Travis event, that was actually the, the pattern that I had dialed in and practiced was I needed to run windblown stuff to catch fish off that spinnerbait. But on that feed spot, I didn't even need wind there. 
it was just a low light condition, early morning deal and nine o'clock it was done. But my game plan was to run main lake bushes with that spinnerbait. Uh, as long as there was wind on it, I could get bit throughout the day. And so that's why it opted for it. It's just one of those baits that covers a lot of water, gets a lot of big bites, especially when you use a bigger profile or a bigger blade. And so that's why it's so effective that time of year. Is that something that's conditional to the springtime where you like that bigger profile? And, and let's actually just break this whole thing down. You know, spinnerbaits, blade sizes go way back in the archives of spinnerbaiting. And, and it's it's crazy. You know, you got ninja blades and hammered blades and, and you know, Bass Pro Shops used to have the tornado. You know, it was like a bent out, obtuse looking blade. But uh, what are the basic principles of what kind and type of spinnerbait to tie on specifically in the springtime? What are the conditions and blade sizes you're looking for? Here's one of the things that I've learned through the years of fishing. And, you know, I guide at Sam Raver and I teach classes how to catch fish using different tools and technologies. And the best thing I can tell guys is you're overthinking everything. When the question like that, it just really reiterates that because I keep it simple. Most pro fishermen really keep things simple and go with what they have confidence in. And for me, if I can get away with it, I'm going to throw a double willow leaf almost the entire time. You know, or a tandem where I've got a Colorado willow leaf combination. You know, there's a lot of guys that swear by Colorado blades. But most of my fishing experience, even though I travel the country, is in Texas. And it seems like they just like a double willow leaf. I was talking to my marshal the other day about it. Travis, I don't know when I throw nickel or gold blades. I could tell you the textbook answer of cloudy days, so gold. You know, bright sunny days, so nickel or silver. But in reality, I'm reaching for a gold willow leaf on the back and a nickel front blade, you know, 90% of the time. I got all the tools to build skirts. I've got all the tools to change up blade sizes. When I have broken wires, I save the blade from old spinner baits that the skirts are gummed up and everything. And I've got all this stuff. And at the end of the day, I still reach for the same ones because I know what I have confidence in. As far as colors, as far as I'm concerned, there's very few colors. You have translucent and you've got opaque. And that's how simple I keep it. And Travis, we had clear water. So I was still in a, it's called a spot remover, which is like a translucent chartreuse, with a little bit of clear, silver, shimmery material to it. If I got stained or dirty water, I'm throwing white or white and chartreuse. I mean, I keep it that simple because that co- those two colors are going to catch them anywhere in the country. It's just like when you're frog fishing. I, you know, I can't tell you what color frog to throw. There's textbook answers based on the weather. But at the same time, for me, it always boils down to translucent or opaque. You know, is it going to be a solid profile on the water or is it going to be one that they can actually see through that's going to look more natural? And that's how I keep my color options there. It comes down to profile. Sometimes I want a smaller profile. Sometimes I want a bigger one. And that usually depends on what the forage is. If they're eating some really small forage, like in the fall of the year where you've had shad spawns or shad hatches, you know, the shad is going to be a little bit smaller. I typically want a smaller blade then. In the wintertime, or in the spring, I usually want a bigger blade. The fish are a little bit more lethargic. I want that bigger thump, and I'm usually fishing it a lot slower. That bigger blade, you can keep it down a little bit deeper by reeling it slow, and that's where those big ones are hanging out at. You'll just keep that constant slow thump, and it'll draw those big bites. There you go. Well, I remember a song back when I was a little younger. It was called More Money, More Problems. It sounds like more spinnerbaits, more problems. Keeping it simple, just having it easy way to go is probably the best way to put more bass in your boat. Thanks, Clark. Appreciate that. Gentlemen, let's Hang strong for a short message from our partners. Bass Edge will return. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Right. 
Eventually, it's going to happen. You'll turn the key and your engine won't start. Don't lose your ability to get around. Visit O'Reilly Auto Parts for a super start battery. Whether it's a reliable economy, hardworking premium, or powerful extreme, you'll find it at an everyday low price. Don't let a dead battery slow you down. Visit O'Reilly Auto Parts. Better parts, better prices every day. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Bass Edge Radio, presented by MegaWare Killguard, returns with FLW Tour Angler Clark Ream in the Lucas Oil Industry Spotlight. That's right, Lucas Oil high-performance marine products, from real oils to two-cycle outboard oil that surpasses all manufacturers' requirements. Visit them at lucasoil.com. It works. Clark, uh, bass are on beds. Some anglers choose not to fish for sight fish for conservation reasons. What shallow water techniques will put anglers into position for their best success rate during that time period? All right. This is one of those major debates that people have had for years. You know, for lack of a better term, we'll call them the tree huggers. They think that catching fish off a bed is a bad deal. But I've got a newsflash for all these people that have concerns about that. If you are fishing in March, April, and May, and you're fishing shallow, whether you're seeing them or not, you're catching fish off of beds. You're chunking at a stump up there that's shallow. There's a good chance that female you just caught was sitting on a bed. So if you don't like it, don't go fishing in the spring. Uh, I know that seems like a negative attitude, but that's that's what you're doing. You know, that fish that's pre-spawn that you're catching, well, it's getting ready to go spawn. You are stressing that fish out. You're handling that fish. Delayed mortality is going to happen. It's one of those things that that's just part of being outdoorsman, fishing, hunting, everything else. People don't like hearing that, but it's the harsh reality of it. As far as catching those fish that you're not seeing, because that's really how this question should be worded, you know, there's a lot of options. You know, one of them is blind casting with a Senko. If you go to areas that you know are spawning flats, there's fish in bushes, or stump flats and, and shallow, you know, areas that fish typically spawn. You're usually looking for a harder bottom. You can actually blind cast and catch these fish without looking at them. And one of the absolute best baits I've found is just the Yamamoto Senko, you know, and it catches tons of fish. The one thing I don't like about it is you catch tons of little ones as well, which are typically the male bass that are cruising around. But that slow drag is going to entice a lot of these fish that are up there spawning. If you're dragging it by a bed, it's no different than if you're sight fishing and leaving that in a bed. You're just trying to get lucky place it where one is spawning at you know this is a time of year where if i'm flipping you know shallow cover wood you know cypress trees dock posts things like that this is when you actually want to fish slower i might use a heavier uh jig or a heavier weight you know just to pitch it in there to get it to the bottom but i'm going to leave it and saturate it a lot longer multiple presentations to an area might entice those bigger fish that are sitting there in that bush if you ever watch the bass on a bed Sometimes you have to just leave it there, and that's what's happening. You know, you can drag lightweight Carolina rigs to these same areas as smaller leaders. They're perfect for dragging around spawning areas, you know, to catch these fish. But either way, you're still catching spawning fish in the springtime. Awesome tips right there. Hopefully that will help some folks catch some more shallow fish during those springtime conditions. And, guys, it is time for O'Reilly Auto Parts, Better Parts, Better Prices Every Day <laughs> listener question segment. And, yes, it's starting a bit early today, but that is because we're going to do it marathon style. We've got so much feedback and so many questions in our little question bank. I wanted to get more of them answered for our listeners, and Clark is a great guest to put on the spot. So uh, here we go. Clark, today's first question. 
question come from Steve Wayne. Steve asks, tungsten weights have been the rage over the last few years. What applications do you use lead instead of tungsten? So this is the easy one for me. You know, there's a guide at Rayburn. I have a lot of guide clients. So whenever I'm using tungsten, I lose a weight. You know, you're losing five, six bucks right there. And so I've gone back using lead in conditions where I think I'm going to get hung up and lose a lot of tungsten weight. Yes, I'm a bass pro. Yes, I get deals on stuff and everything else. But I still spend three to $6,000 a year buying tackle. And that's quite a bit. Uh, so anytime I can save a little bit of money, I'm going to go back to lead. The primary technique that I've gone back to lead on is Carolina rigging, especially on lakes that I'm familiar with. And I'm fishing a lot of spots that I'm not having to worry about figuring out the bottom composition. So I've gone back to using a three-quarter ounce lead egg sinker for most of my fishing on a Carolina rig. For one, I can tell what a bite feels like. You know, if you train yourself, figure that out, you're not having to worry about getting that better response rate with that tungsten. And so I can buy five pack of lead egg sinkers for five bucks, whereas that same three-quarter ounce tungsten weight is going to cost me six. And so I use lead for that Carolina rig. Texas rigging, I almost always stick with tungsten mainly because of the compact size over using the, the receptor. Drop shotting is another one where I just primarily use lead because I don't really care about feeling the bottom composition. I'm just wanting that bait to get to the bottom, be there in front of the fish, and catch what's there. I'm not really worried about feeling the bottom. Now, if I want to go out and explore and break down water and try and find new spots, whether it be shell beds, rock, clay, things of that nature, that's when that tungsten is going to come in handy on something like a Carolina rig. But on places I'm familiar with, I'm going with that lead just because it's cheaper. I can go to a bunch of them. And there's one other aspect that I need to mention is a lot of times you're getting fish that bite the weight. And Sam Rayburn and Toledo Band are notorious for this. And I can pull that weight up and I can look and see teeth marks all over that lead where those fish are biting it and they're scratching it up. So a lot of times if I'm missing fish, I have to put two and two together. Am I looking at that weight? I can tell that. Well, that's good stuff there. The second question, Clark, comes from Adam Ross. Adam wants to know, it seems like the wintertime, especially in Highland Reservoirs, has shown how effective an umbrella rig can be. However, as we know, many tournament circuits are not allowing the use of umbrella rigs. What are some effective lures and techniques that can be used to target those same fish in areas when an umbrella rig is not an option? First thing first, I love throwing an umbrella rig in non-tournament situations. I caught an 11-2 two years ago on an A-rig, swung it with an 804 Dobbins rod over the side of the boat. I thought it was a seven-pounder. It just is a flat-out fish catcher. When you look at tournament results from when the A-rig came out initially, guys that had never gotten checks before, you know, were all of a sudden winning tournaments. Now, it's not just an idiot-proof bait. You still have to know where fish are at and, and everything else. You're not just going to chunk it out in places and make fish show up, but it definitely catches fish that won't bite traditional offerings. With that being said, I like the fact that it's a banned tournament because it's just one less thing I've got to deal with and carry. It, it's a mess in the boat. So we have to figure out ways to catch them. And I'm going to give you a perfect example. You know, a month or so ago, we were at Lake Gunnersville for an FLW tour event. If A-Rigs would have been legal in that tournament, two-thirds of the entire field would have been throwing it the entire time. Weights would have been way up. You know, fish catches would have been way up. There would have been a lot more limits caught. And so I was actually glad it's not because it makes guys actually work to catch the fish more. And a lot of guys, instead of throwing that A-Rig, which specializes in catching suspended fish, that's where it really shines in the wintertime. So about the two best offerings I can tell you to throw in those situations are, number one, a suspending jerk bait. Number two is a single swim bait. You don't need to have five swim baits down there, but a single one, maybe a bigger sized one 
you're trying to target those bigger fish and you're trying to keep that bait in that water column. And so a swim bait will actually trigger bites that aren't going to bite other offerings. And so those are the two best options you really have for catching them on that day rate. All right, good stuff, Clark. Today's third question and our final question comes from Aaron Finney out of West Virginia. Aaron asks, I only began fishing about two years ago and recently moved from bank to kayak fishing. What tips could you give me to find fish quickly and what baits would you recommend for versatility given that I can only carry four rods on my kayak? All right. This is one of those deals where you have a lot of limitations. And I actually haven't done the kayak deal, but I've got a lot of friends that do it. I fish in the bank, you know, quite a bit whenever I can, just because I enjoy bank fishing, not on the lake, but a lot of ponds. And so I know the limitations that you have. The number one limitation you really have is you really have to go shallow. And so you don't really need to worry about deep water techniques unless you've got a depth finder rigged up. And I know a lot of these modern kayaks, guys are rigging fancy depth finders on them to be able to do things and see stuff. But as a whole, you need to fish shallow. So right off the bat, for finding fish, the best information I can tell you is go to your computer. People don't worry about scouting as much off the water. They think you're being more productive by casting and being on the water than doing your homework before you get there. And modern-day map study means using Google Earth. There are a lot of resources out there that are going to benefit you, but Google Earth, with their low-water imagery, hands down, is the most effective map study you can do. And whenever you're limited to fish in shallow, you've got the opportunity to see different water levels that are going on. So if you know you're going to be limited to fishing 10 foot or less, just like Lake Travis we were just at, you know, there's Google Earth images with it 50 feet low. Well, if you're going to fish, you know, shallow right now, the lake is at regular pool, you can see all those little rock lines, the transition areas, things like that. You can see those bush areas. You can see those flats. You can see brush piles and isolated rocks. Well, you can sit there and utilize all that stuff. And with a handheld GPS, with your phone, you're able to actually go out there and get right on this stuff so you're not wasting your time paddling, looking around. You're going straight to it. Now, as far as rods, you want to keep that simple as well. You know, when we have a big bass boat, you know, my skeeter can hold a dozen rods in the rod locker plus a whole bunch on the front deck. I'm able to specialize my rods per technique, you know, because a lot of it comes down to hookup and landing percentages. I need the right rod, the right action, everything else. But when you're in that kayak and limited to four rods, you have to keep it simple. For one, you're not going to need a flipping stick. Kayaks are sturdy, but they're not that sturdy to go flipping with very often. You're not going to need that giant punching rod. You're probably not going to need that eight-foot deep diving crankbait rod. You know, So you need to keep it pretty simple. And one thing I do know, when you're at that low trajectory that you've got in that kayak, you need stuff with tip action to be able to cast effectively. With a stouter rod, you're not going to be able to cast effectively. And so you typically don't want to have to deal with heavy action rods or extra heavy rods. So medium heavy action rod is going to be your typical rod choice. You need shorter rods. So you're also going to tend to lean towards techniques that shorter rods with a little bit of tip are going to benefit you the most. Things like Senkos and Flukes, you know, smaller spinner bait, crank baits that you can throw with a seven foot rod. You know, that's going to be the best options you've got. You're going to need to have that rod load up or you're going to need to roll cast and sidearm to make effective cast and presentation. Wow. Ton of great information there, Clark. Thanks uh, for tackling all of these tremendous listener questions. Steve, Adam, and Aaron, be sure to email us or go to our website, BassEdge.com. 
simply click on the claim your prize tab let us know that you heard Clark answer your questions here on the show be sure to include your mailing address and we will ship out that O'Reilly Auto Parts gift card to each and every one of you and Bass Edge listeners huge thanks for continuing to send in those questions keep them coming we want to give you more gift cards and we want to get those questions answered on the show in the Lucas Oil Angler Spotlight go to our website BassEdge.com or put a question out there on Facebook or our Twitter media page Pages. We'll hit those up right here on Bass Edge Radio. All right, Clark. Hey, again, enjoyed having you back on the show. Thanks for hanging with us. Uh, any final words as we shut this down? Uh, I mentioned it on stage at Lake Travis a couple weeks ago. People tend to get dialed in to what they're going to do. You know, they tend to fish memories and places like that. These lakes are constantly evolving. You need to spend more time not fishing to catch more fish. I know that sounds crazy, but the more time you spend looking at satellite imagery, idling around using your Lowrance units, looking for offshore stuff, looking for all these subtleties, you know, learning, looking at different resources, that ultimately will make you a better angler than just going out there and chumping and winding. I tell people there's four aspects to fishing. There's fishing, pre-fishing, scouting, and tournament fishing. Tournament fishing is... When you go out and you've got money on the line or where you actually have to show results for that day for written history. It doesn't necessarily have to be trying to win money. It could be I'm taking somebody on a guide trip. You know, it could be I'm taking a sponsor out. It could be I'm taking my six-year-old boy out fishing. It's days that I need to produce. Everybody knows that guy that wins practice. When it boils down to it, on tournament day, he usually doesn't catch them. Well, nobody cares that you caught them when it didn't matter. You need to know how to catch when it matters. That's tournament fishing. Fishing is what people do whenever they just go out on the water and start chunking and white. We all know that guy that caught that big bag that one time of putting the troll motor down at the boat ramp and just bombing a plastic worm beating the bank. Well, he's just fishing. There's no rhyme or reason what he's doing out there. Sometimes I'm just fishing even in a tournament situation when you know it's not right. The fish aren't there. The pattern's not working. And you still want to go up and see the grass is always greener. You want to go up to that next dock. You want to keep going on and just casting. You are just fishing at that point. And Travis, that's what most of the people were doing in practice. It wasn't dialing in what was going on. It was just trying to get bites to make themselves feel better. Day three of practice, the wind was blowing. We had rain. It was nasty. You put on a spinnerbait that day, you're not going to learn anything for day one of the tournament when they're calling for slick, high-pressure bluebird skies. That is just fishing at that point. Satiating your need to catch them. Hey, I know there's a fish in that brush pile. Do I need to go cast at that thing when it doesn't matter? Because if you stick that six-pounder on on Monday, it's not going to do any good on tournament day. Now, the other two deals, pre-fishing and scouting, pre-fishing is where you're trying to figure out what's going on right then and there. That's dialing it in. And sometimes in the tournament day, you're pre-fishing as well, trying to figure out how you're going to catch them. Are they in the backs of creeks? Are they in the mouths of creeks in the middle section? Are they on rock? Are they on gravel? Are they on grass? Are they on wood? You're trying to put all those pieces together. And that's where people screw up. They need to learn how to pre-fish more effectively. And the last thing is scouting. Scouting to me is the best thing that you can do to find fish. Yes, fishing helps, pre-fishing helps. But if I know where that underwater rock pile is, or I know where that brush pile is, or that break, or whatever else, that stuff isn't going anywhere. I tell people all the time, I can scout for a tournament 15 years from now at Rayburn today. Even though that tournament might be in July, we can scout right now because that underwater bridge is going to be there. That roadbed is going to be there. Those places those fish are going to get, it's going to be consistent where they're going to get. So spend more time pre-fishing and scouting than actually tournament fishing 
and regular fishing, and you're going to become better anglers. There you go, folks. I said it at the beginning of the show. Clark Ream's a journeyman in this sport, and there you go. That's food for thought right there. Really good stuff, Clark. I super appreciate you chilling with us today, and I got to send you out with our segment. Four last questions for you. You all set, buddy? Yes, sir. All right. If you were a brand, what would be your motto? Oh, man. Uh, That's kind of one of those oddball questions. I kind of touched on it just a minute ago. My brand would be, you know, my company is called the Elite Angler Academy. Really, I've got two quotes that I say all the time. One of them is, we've all heard that 90% of the fish are in 10% of the water. And it's actually not true. 90% of the fish are actually in less than 1% of the water. And when you start scouting and start breaking it down, you'll figure that out on your own. And the second one is people say there's no substitute for time on the water, and I think that's bogus. It's actually there's no substitute for quality time on the water. And that, again, goes back to what I was talking about, about scouting, pre-fishing, you know, fishing, and tournament fishing. All right. What is the last picture you took with your phone? Oh, my son. You know, when, when you're a dad, that's the best thing you've got going on. Um you know, you treasure those moments you get to spend with him and can't beat those times with your kids. And when you spend a lot of time away, you know, you look back on those pictures quite often, you know, and it just breaks your heart when you're having to be on the road and, you know, you just miss your family. So those are the most important pictures of my phone. You know, I'll catch more fish. You know, all these fish pictures that guys have, it's great. I'm going to catch more fish, but you can't make up that time and those, those moments that you capture with your family. Okay. Would you catch a fish on the first cast of the day? If he bites. <laughs> I know people have that superstition about that, but, you know, that's one more fish in the box, so I'm not going to complain. If you catch eight pounds on the first cast, even though you're superstitious, nobody's going to throw that fish back. <laughs> you just won the next national tournament. Who do you say thanks to first? Probably my dad more than anybody. Um, he's my number one fan. He follows this up religiously, almost to a fault. I have to sit there and get on to him constantly because he wants to tell me what's happened on the blog and, and what this guy said and that guy said. And I keep reminding him, Dad, that guy's full of crap. You know, I sat in the truck with him riding to go eat dinner. He's just sitting there trying to trying to sell products. You know, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear what this guy's doing or that guy's doing. But at the same time, all he wants to do is help. And throughout my career, uh, that's what he's wanted to do. He was in the Army for 28 years. You know, he, he kind of lives vicariously through me. You know, I appreciate everything he's done for me. He helps me sink brush piles if I need it. He and my mom are both retired. They'll come down and watch my son when I have to go on the road. My dad is my hero, and he's my biggest fan, so I, he's the first and foremost guy I would ever think. That's great stuff, Clark. I appreciate you opening up with us today. Bass Edge Radio will be right back. Patented in 2000, perfected over years of testing and real-world punishment, the PowerPole is the ultimate shallow-water boat positioning tool. Swift. PowerPole deploys in seconds from anywhere in your boat. Virtually silent, PowerPole won't spook wary fish. Secure in strong currents or gusting winds in up to eight feet of water. Engineered to take it with a lifetime unconditional replacement guarantee on the spike. PowerPole, swift, silent, secure. Visit PowerPole.com to find a dealer near you. You know the importance of protecting your investments, so why use anything other than the toughest keel protector for your boat? Grinding sand, abrasive rocks, and concrete ramps are no match for our patented technology. KeelGuard keel protectors are made tough and made to stick. Their do-it-yourself installation takes less than an hour, providing the most dependable, most trusted keel protection for your boat, guaranteed for life. So give your boat the performance edge. Put on the protection the pros pick. KeelGuard keel protectors. Keel 
big shout out to Clark Ream again. Always fun. You know, Clark is never short of words to uh, describe what he wants everybody to know. So uh, thanks for Clark and, and all the information he provides to our listeners. Got to remind everybody that the BassEdge.com website is going through the roof because uh, we're putting on new videos every couple weeks. We've got new articles coming to you every couple weeks. Um, of course, as everybody knows on our Facebook page, we're doing giveaways pretty often. So make sure you stay up with all the Bass Edge media. It's been going through the roof. Aaron has been working his tail off to uh, make sure that everybody's getting some free goodies. So uh, that stuff's going to keep coming to you. Always trying to continue to provide the best, latest, most innovative information right here at Bass Edge Radio. Yeah, Kurt, you bring up a good point. Things have been going nuts. I know that Jay McNamara's book, we've had to do uh, two shipments within two weeks and it was hilarious to hear his response when I said hey you know what stock's low we just sold out but I I don't know what's going on with that but anyway uh, if you're not familiar with Jay's book certainly the psychology of exceptional fishing is out there uh, on the Bass Edge website along with those DVDs that we've already mentioned but you know Kurt I'm just going to shut us down because I've got to get out it's that time of year man put the power poles down on my Nitro Z21 and I want to go see if I can see some cruisers or, or at least go catch a fish so anyway hopefully back Bass Edge Nation gets to do the same for Kurt Dove and the rest of the Bass Edge crew. I am Aaron Martin. Thank you for tuning us in once again, and we will join you on episode 253, April 1st. is presented by MegaWare KeelGuard. For more information on Bass Edge or to shop at the Bass Edge online store, visit BassEdge.com and be sure to join Kurt Dove and Aaron Martin right here on another episode of The Edge. Brought to you in part by Nitro Boats, O'Reilly Auto Parts, Lucas Oil, ProtectTheHarvest.com, Mercury Marine, Lowrance Electronics, PowerPole, and Rapaholic.com.